If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can open to the book of Jude. We're almost to the end of our two-year series, Here is Love, and um, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident Pastor Jordan will be uh, preaching in Revelation next week, so uh, if you wanted a three-hour sermon, you certainly set him up for uh, the right book to, to do that. We're in the midst of studying that, uh, so you ladies um, that uh, uh, may, may plan on uh, skipping that lunch, you may want to rethink that. Um, Pastor Jordan will be uh, saddled up and ready to go in Revelation next week. The book of Jude, though small, is uh, certainly loaded with content, and we hope to dig into that today. I want to read the text to you, and then we'll pray for the preaching of God's Word. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray that your gospel would come to us this morning, not simply with words, as Jim prayed, Father, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude's introduction in the first couple of verses should give us much encouragement. Much encouragement to the believer. He says... Jude, he's describing himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those, listen to this, who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. According to the text, the saints are called, loved, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, loved, and kept. Some translations may say sanctified God, but the more accurate translation here should read, having been loved by God, to be His beloved. If you are prone to doubt, the book of Jude is certainly of great encouragement. We are called, not of our own accord, but by the living God, who loves us with His perfect love and keeps us to the end, not on the basis, again, of our righteousness, but according to His mercy. Sometimes the most simple statements made in Scripture like we find here in the first two verses of Jude are full of great significance, especially in these 
introductions in these letters that we see all throughout the New Testament. And often we, we bypass them, we don't consider them, we don't meditate on them. But I want to urge you not to do that with the book of Jude, to think about the truth that's being communicated here. God called you, He loves you, and He will keep you. Honestly, I could probably stop there and we'd all leave uh, with a great deal of encouragement. It is to these beloved saints that Jude writes. And he writes to them with one specific intent in mind. That they would contend for the faith. He wants them to contend for the faith. It is the one idea that Jude writes about that we want to give our time and attention to this morning. We want to look at what does it mean to contend for the faith. We want to answer really three questions as we push through the text to, to, to know and understand what he means when he says contend for the faith. What, what does that mean? And why must we contend for the faith? And if we contend for the faith, what is the outcome of our contending? Now I want you to notice a couple of things about the faith that Jude makes clear in the first few verses before we dive into what it is he's trying to communicate to us. In verse 3, he says this. Uh, by the way, I love, you'll see it throughout the, the text, the language that, that Jude uses uh, as he writes to these saints. He just continues to say to them, beloved, beloved, beloved. Uh, I love that language. And I, I, I think we should uh, speak to each other in, in, in such terms. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude is writing to the believer about their salvation. And he says that it is a common salvation. By common, he does not mean that it is often found, or that it occurs frequently. We know from God's Word that many are headed down the road of destruction, and it is a wide road that they travel upon. But only a few are traveling down the narrow road. So when he says common, we know he's not talking about that it's frequent among the people of his day. We know, according to Scripture, that few find salvation. But in this particular instance, the word common means that it's something that they have in common together. It's something that they share. So he says, I'm writing to you about this salvation that we share. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're together in this. He's writing about this salvation from God that the saints share together. That's been handed down by God once for all to the saints. We are not saved because we are saints, but rather we become saints because God chooses to save us. The sovereignty of God and salvation is clear in this text. Now I want you to notice that this salvation, according to the text, was handed down to us or delivered to us, depending on what version you may have in front of you. We must know that this delivering of salvation to us is the condescension of Christ. It is the virgin birth. It is His 
sinless life. It is his humility to obey the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when he says that this salvation was handed down to us, that's a loaded statement. It should cause our minds to consider all that Christ did to see to it that we could be saved. See, Jesus was crucified on a cross by human hands. Men He created. So when Jude says this salvation that was handed down to us, he's making very clear that God extended this salvation to us through His Son, Jesus. This is how salvation was handed down to us. Jesus willing death on the cross for our behalf. Well, my hope is that in just the three verses that we've looked at so far in Jude, that it's not just a casual introduction to you, but rather you see a gospel-loaded salutation. You see an introduction of a man who loves the people that he's writing to, and he wants to encourage them. He wants wants them to know that they've been called of God, that they are loved by God, and that God will keep them. He wants them to have a great deal of confidence in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So before we move into really understanding what it is that Jude wants us to see concerning contending for the faith, we want to burrow down into the text. Jude says, I'm appealing to you, I'm pleading with you that you contend earnestly for the faith. So the question that I posed at the beginning, that I said we'll have to cover if we push through this text, is what does it mean to contend for the faith? Well, the word contend means to to struggle to surmount, to grapple with, to wrestle with, to, to take on, to accept the challenge. Yes, According to Jude, God calls us. Yes, God loves us. And yes, God promises to keep us to the end. And yes, Jesus has earned our salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection. We must expect that we will have to contend for faith. All those things that Jude says at the beginning are true. It's good and right encouragement. God called us. God loves us. God will keep us. Christ has earned our salvation. It's common to us as believers. But listen to me. Jude is not mincing words here. He's making it very clear that it must be contended for. This faith must be contended for. We must wrestle. We must fight. We must labor hard to lay hold of this blood-bought faith. We just sang a minute ago, He will hold me fast. And now I'm saying to you, according to God's word, Jude is urging us to contend for the faith, to fight for it, to lay hold of Christ. So how do those two go together? I'm glad you ask, because I believe Jude gives us much insight into that. In short, to to contend for the faith means that Satan will not sit idly by while you embrace the salvation of the Lord. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, Satan goes into action. 
Not only Satan, but the world will not ignore your salvation. The world will hunt you down. The world will persecute you. The world will mock you. And it's not just Satan. And it's not just the world. But listen to this. The old sin nature in you will not happily submit to the life of Christ in the soul of man. But war will break out. The old man, with all his might, against the indwelling Spirit of God, which God promises to those who believe, will rise up and do war. Your salvation is free. Christ has earned it for you. God calls you, loves you, and keeps you. But listen, when you receive that salvation, you must now contend for it. You must now contend for the faith. To contend means that you're aware of the pending battles. I don't want you to be fooled. I don't want you to relax. I don't want you to think that when you put your justifying faith in Jesus, that it's over. Too many in this society, dear friends of mine, think because they prayed a prayer 20 years ago that they can live life how they want and they no longer contend for their faith and their life looks nothing like that of a believer. And to their dismay, on that great day that Jude talks about, they'll find out that not contending for the faith means they never had it. To not contend is ignorance. Quite honestly, to not contend is a testimony of a lack of faith, perhaps a demonstration of no faith at all. Simply put, Jude is saying, if you've been delivered the salvation of Jesus, if it's been handed down to you, then you must vigorously contend for the faith that's been given to you. Now, I mentioned some enemies that are going to show up at the moment that faith enters in. And I want to expose those enemies according to the text. Let me mention those again. Satan, the world, and the old sin nature. We've already alluded to those enemies. Look with me in Jude chapter 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now, he's talking about the church. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord, excuse me, of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see the alarming words that Jude uses in verse 4. It should grab your attention. How is it possible that the description that he uses of them, as alarming as it is, that they turn the grace of God into licentiousness and they deny Christ as Lord and Master? How can those people slip in unnoticed? How is that even possible? If those things are true, how is it possible that they slip in? Persons have crept in unnoticed, meaning they have come into the house of the Lord and appear as believers. But make no mistake, listen to me, though they've crept in unnoticed among us, they are not unnoticed by God. He's fully aware, he's fully aware of who they are. He knows their heart. They have not duped Him. He is not deceived. 
He has marked them long beforehand for eternal condemnation. They are ungodly persons, perhaps having a form of godliness, but they deny its power altogether. The text says two things are true. There's two attributes of these individuals. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Listen to me. You turn the grace of God into anything beyond, besides the grace of God, and you've turned it into something terrible. He says in the text they turn it into licentiousness, meaning a license to sin, to live life however you think you want to live life, and they deny Christ as Lord. So perhaps we're still wondering, how then can someone who denies Christ as Lord and abuses the grace of God, living in sin, how could they creep in unnoticed? Well, I'll tell you how. They hide their sin well. They're manipulative. They're deceitful. They isolate themselves so that they won't be exposed. They excuse their sin as Christian liberty. Or they'll blame their sin on others. And they carry out their evil motives by twisting Scripture to support their selfish ways. They look like sheep. They sound like sheep. But they certainly act like wolves in sheep clothing. And God have mercy on us. As much as the elders and the membership of this church try to protect one another, some will creep in and wreak havoc. As careful as we try to be, some will slip in and wreak havoc. God have mercy. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. But how do they deny Christ as Lord? How does that person slip into the fold? They would never deny Christ with their lips. As a matter of fact, they can, among us, pray the most beautiful, flowery prayers. They'll say the most gospel-centered things in our presence. And yet, their life denies Christ as Lord. There's coming a day when Jesus will say to those people, Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't care how flowery your prayers were. I don't care how mentally well you were able to grasp the gospel. If you do not submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are not a follower of Him. The point is, these persons are frightening. They have evil intent. Intent to do harm. And if we're not ready to contend with the enemy, we will suffer at their hands. Now, I want us to stop for just a minute. And with Jude, be reminded of something very important, an important reality. Though we should certainly be on our guard for those evildoers who may attempt to slip in among us and cause harm, we must know and we must believe that God is not fooled by these people. He does not sit off in this far off place while we contend for the faith on our own. I want you to see that God's actions are very clear. Look with me in verse 5. Not only is God going to expose these enemies, but I want you to see the warning that he gives against the ungodly. He says this in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, all right, so Jude wants to remind them of something. Though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who do not, did not believe. Now listen, in the same act, God will save some people and judge others. 
that the salvation that he talks about in the text affects both the believer and the unbeliever. In the tenth and final plague in Egypt, we find a picture of the cross of Jesus. His death on the cross was salvation to some, but to everyone else, it was judgment. Only those who have obeyed God through faith by spreading the the blood of the Lamb across the mantle of the door, would receive salvation from the Lord. But to any who did not believe and obey, God destroyed. See, they were given a warning. You must sacrifice the Lamb. You must put the blood across the mantle. Now listen, I'm confident that that plague that was sent didn't just affect Egyptians. It could have affected the people of Israel who didn't put the blood across their door. The command was clear. The warning was clear. Only those who obey through faith by spreading the blood of the Lamb across the mantle of the door will receive salvation. So in one act, in an instant, in the middle of the night, God saved some and destroyed others. Jesus' death on the cross is either salvation or condemnation. You either put your faith in Jesus as the only means for salvation, or you don't, and are therefore not saved. The consequence of our faith are already determined. Heaven or hell. There's only two destinations. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. There's no second chance when Christ returns. So be reminded, Jude says, as frightening as the deceivers may be, God has marked them for his judgment and the saint for his salvation. Jude spends the next 11 verses describing for us the enemy, the unbeliever, and the consequences of their sin. For time's sake, let's look at some of the highlights of 6 through 16. I'll just push through the text. I hope that you've had time to read Jude prior to today's sermon, um, knowing that it, it was coming for some time. A great day of judgment is reserved for the ungodly, what verse 6 tells us. Verse 7 says, those indulging in gross immorality will undergo the punishment of the eternal fire. Verse 8 tells us that many will live in delusion, defile the flesh, reject authority. Look at verse 9, interesting to the text. It says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now listen, Michael is no slacker. This is an angel's angel, right? And he is in dispute with Satan about the body of Moses. And in his argument, he doesn't flex his own muscle. He doesn't demonstrate his own power, but rather... He simply calls upon the name of the Lord. He knows that the argument that Satan has given him is of no value. And so he says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Doesn't matter what you say to me or what I say to you, the Lord will rebuke you. Our goal here is not to pronounce judgment on anybody. That's God's place. We simply follow Michael's pattern. State very plainly in our confidence that the Lord will deal with the hearts of men. I have a great deal of confidence as a pastor that I don't have to be the judge of men. 
That's, that that responsibility is never put on me or any other human being. We trust God and His Word to deal with the hearts of men. Verse 10 tells us that the enemy acts in ignorance and the things which all humanity knows by nature, they audaciously contradict. Do you hear that? Think about that. Things that are common sense, that are, are, are just natural for everybody to understand, they contradict. Well, that sounds awful familiar to me. I can't help but read those verses and not consider some of the things that we hear in today's society. I'll pick one as an example. The idea of being transgender. This defiles all basic logic. Our modern American culture is not experiencing some fresh movement where people are being set free from the oppressive labels of society like you'll be told. But rather, this modern movement, this transgender that goes against everything that's natural that God created, it's just an old, stale form of sin that Jude confronts 2,000 years ago. It's the same sin. It's the same crazy mentality that God's Word makes very clear that men will do. And listen to what the next verse says. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, And they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. I said to Rick before the message, those Old Testament names that are mentioned in the book of Jude, if you're in the Old Testament, you don't want Jude mentioned in your name because it's not good. The way of Cain, Cain was the first known unbeliever. He turned his back on God. He lived in defiance and hatred. That's the way of Cain. The heir of Balaam, probably far more frightening from my vantage point than Cain. He was used of God for good purposes, but then he saw that he was being used and he began to use his God-given gifts to carry out his own lust for his own gain. Twisting God's words for his purposes. What a scary place to be. And the rebellion of Korah, trying to overthrow Moses and Aaron, trying to usurp those God had placed in a position of authority. Cain, Balaam, and Korah says that this is wrapped up in the enemy's sin. Says in verse 12, they're sly, they only care for themselves, they're empty, they're flighty, they're fruitless. I love this. Double dead or doubly dead. I didn't even know that was possible. He says they're of no substance, out of control, shameless. And verses 14 and 15 say, reserved for them is God waiting to execute judgment. God waiting to convict all the ungodly. Now listen to this description. Listen to the depths of the sinfulness. To convict all, I'm in verse uh, 15, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He continues in verse 16. They're grumblers, they're fault finders, following after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, they're flatterers, 
and they're out for selfish gain. Listen, saints, we will have to contend with the world. We'll have to contend with all that Jude has laid out for us there. But I want to speak very clearly here. Our contending, though the world will come, though we know Satan will try to deceive, our most important contending will come within the household of God, among one another. We must contend for the faith within the church and for the church, protecting the church from these ill-intended and ignorant ideas. What I'm trying to make plain is that your personal identity should be found in Christ and nothing else. Listen to me. There's a lot of ways that we can find identity. I can find my identity in a lot of things. A lot of things that I can find my identity in. But listen to me. They all have to step aside. They all have to step aside for our identity to be found in Christ. That's not an easy thing for us to do because our flesh wants to rise up. Our pride wants to rise up. God intends for us to contend for the faith among the saints. It's not God's intention to save the world through any structure or system apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the church. Don't get caught up in anything else. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we are contending for that faith. The last time I checked, nothing else could save except Jesus Christ and Him alone. Nothing else can save. There's other important things in this world. There's other things that have value, but they can't save you. Only Christ can save. Our goal as believers cannot be accomplished by any other means. Our goal as a church, we say all the time, is to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy. There's no system or structure outside of the church where that can be accomplished. Jews' warning is not about anything but the church. And we should be contending for the faith among one another. That's where he's warning that, that others will rise up that have slipped in. So my question is this. In your belief system, in what you spend your time learning and growing in, and what you believe is good and right, and the right way forward, and addressing the things of the world. As you formulate what you believe, are you considering every member of Grace Church with your words and actions? Are you considering every member of Grace Church with every word that you speak or post on Facebook with your every action? Can you think of every face, every member? And are you, are you truly considering the brethren? Are we more one with the saints of Grace Church or some ideology? 
I'm saying there's all kinds of evil out there. And ultimately, that evil is going to come against the church and it will even creep into the church unnoticed. It will wreak havoc. And if we are not Christians first, if we do not love Christ first, if we do not love one another first, then all these things that the world will bombard us with will get a foothold and it'll divide. And if we are divided, we'll never reflect Christ to the world that so desperately needs Him. So set aside all those other things and look upon Christ. I want you to see Jude's words of encouragement in verse 17. We push through all the warnings of 6 through 16 and there's a lot there. I was remarking to Jeff before the service that there's about three sermons in those verses alone and we pushed through them pretty quickly because I wanted to get to verse 17. This is what it says. But you, he's speaking to the believer now that you love so much, beloved. You ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own godly, excuse me, ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded. They're devoid of the Spirit. Listen to me. The reason Jude is warning what he's warning in verses 17, 18, and 19 is because it can happen. Because it does happen. That creeps into the life of the church. And we get divided because we become worldly minded. And even though we have the Spirit of God within us, we're devoid of the Spirit in our thinking. And we begin to push agendas and things that aren't Christ first, that don't have our identity wrapped up in Christ. But you, beloved, verse 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I think he gives us several things that we ought to consider in our contending for the faith. Here's some some application. How how do we contend? All right, you've made it clear, Brian, we, we have to contend. And that the enemy's there, and that we're going to be attacked, and even attacks from within. Well, here it is. Verse 17, he says, Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's words. Remember God's words. Be warned. All we have to do is go back and look. We have... A book full of His words that we should consider. That's how we contend for the faith. Meditate on this book. Meditate on the God of this book. The second thing He says is build yourselves up in verse 20. How do we do that? He tells us. Praying in the Holy Spirit. You want to grow as a believer? Pray. You want to know? I've heard people remark about, I don't feel like I'm growing much. Are you praying much? Jude makes it pretty clear that those go hand in hand. Your prayer life that nobody else sees reflects who you really are. Build yourself up. Pray to God. The third thing he says is keep yourselves in God's love. Waiting on 
the mercy of God, His eternal salvation. Cling to Him. That's our only hope for salvation, is God's love to us, right? God demonstrates His love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died to us. How do we know God's love? We lean into Christ, who died for us, who was God's demonstration of love to us. The fourth thing, remember God's Word, build yourselves up by praying, Keep yourselves in God's love, trusting in His salvation. And number four, be merciful. Especially to those who are doubting. Listen to me. Everybody in this room, even the most confident of believers, has to deal with doubt. We all do. It comes. There are days. Now, I most assuredly know that some struggle with doubt more than others. And God says, let's be merciful with one another. Let's be merciful with one another. That's how we contend for the faith. We're we're actually coming alongside others to help them contend for the faith. The fifth thing he says is, save some. Now, we all know, I'll say it to make it very plain, only God saves. So what does he mean by save some? He means snatching them out of the fire. Boldly preach Jesus to the most hell-bent sinners you know. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And he says, on some have mercy with fear, right? Some are more tender souls. Though lost, deal with them gently. Showing them in the scripture the way of Christ. I love people that can take God's word and just gently and calmly walk somebody through God's word and point them to Christ. It's a skill that we all should learn. And then number six, hate sin. Never be content with any hint of sin in your life. Now listen, I'll be the first to admit that God consistently has to look into the crevices of my heart and expose sin that I've either become comfortable with or was ignorant of. I'm certainly capable. I've proven it. These elders who I walk with know me well. They know where I've fallen. They know where my sin is. They know what it's like. We're all capable. And unless we learn to hate our sin, we'll weaken our contention for the faith. Hate sin, especially the flesh. That old sin nature is going to war against you. You must deny yourself. Right? Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Well, I want to conclude with this. I know we're at the 12 o'clock hour. There's two verses left in Jude that we would certainly not do justice to the book without looking at. The last thing that I want to see is resting in the promises of God. Resting in the promises of God. If we're going to contend for the faith, yes, we can do those six things that I mentioned, those six points of application, but resting in God's promises or in the God of promises. Look with me in verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Well, I I said at the beginning of the sermon, this book is loaded. That verse is the most loaded of the whole book. 
we should be resting in the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. We know from the psalmist that we stumble all the time. How feeble-legged we are. We're like little children learning to walk, stumbling around. We need God's help. The world wants to push us down. The enemy lurks to ambush us. And here we are just struggling on our own to walk on a smooth path. But the mighty hand of God is there to defend us and to keep us steady and to hold us up and to keep us from stumbling according to the text. We're not just wrestling in the, excuse me, resting in the one who can keep us from stumbling, but we're resting in the one who makes you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Man, man, man. Those of us, all of us, like me, so prone to stumbling, will stand with confidence in the presence of God. How can it be? Not because of our goodness or our strength, but according to His mercy and grace. Though we are far off from that now, God will not stop until He has made us perfect, blameless before Himself, no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. God promises that He will complete that work. What a promise that we can stand before the living God, holy, 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 and we can stand before Him blamelessly. How is that possible? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Imagine with great joy, dear saints, put on your imagination caps for a second. One day, sin and even the temptation of sin will be gone. The old man and his sin nature will be doubly dead. Satan will be shut out and the world cast aside. And only us and Christ in that throne room of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I know you've spent time there. What a beautiful picture. The line of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that was slain, will be there with him in unhindered fellowship. Because God is faithful to keep those who contend for the faith to the end. God's faithfulness will put us in that room. Verse 25. So we worship Him. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We praise You that You have called us. You love us with the death and resurrection of Your Son. And You promise to keep us. And Father, those promises don't mean that there's not labor, work to be done here on earth. Lord, help us. Help us as believers to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith in our own heart and among the saints. Lord, let our identity be in Christ and Christ alone. And Father, Help us to rest in the God who promises, in the God who promises us that He will keep us from stumbling and that He will cause us to stand blamelessly before the living God. We praise You. We praise the name of Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.